engine light on? Take the guesswork out of your check engine light with O'Reilly Veriscan. It's free and provides a report with solutions based on over 650 million vehicle scans verified by ASE certified master technicians. And if you need help, we can recommend a shop for you. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 211, and today in the show, Spencer, Dan, and I are celebrating spring turkey hunting season by sharing a few of our latest turkey exploits and answering listener-submitted turkey hunting questions. Alright, welcome to another episode of the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today on the show, we're doing our what's kind of become like our annual turkey episode. And joining me, we got my buddy Dan Johnson and Spencer Newharth. Thanks guys for making this happen. We're recording late today because Dan, you've got a sick kid again. Kids. I feel like this happens sick. every week. Kids, kids, sick kids. What what are you kids. doing to these kids that they're constantly in the infirmary? Uh, you gotta work them. I mean, that's how you build up their tolerance. <laughs> like you know, clean out the garage and mow the start. You know, start the yard work and you know, vacuum and do all the chores that I don't want to do. That's why kid. That's why people have kids. Oh, okay. And, and so it's the fact that they're just slightly overworked that they're under the weather now. Yeah, it could be. That's their fault. They're not conditioned for it. <laughs> You're such a great uh, role model for me as a parent. <laughs> How Not to Raise Kids is the book that I would yeah. write. Yeah, man. I uh, I was on baby duty tonight because my wife yeah. was uh, playing in a volleyball tournament. So I had to uh, bathe him and change him and feed him and put him down all on my own and i managed to, yeah I, I managed to do it with no major emergencies or issues so i'm giving myself a pat in the back um spencer still no kids for you huh no no surprises yet still no kids if uh one showed up that would be the case though yeah yeah hey speaking of uh well not really speaking of anything but before we get into anything of real substance <laughs> I was just reminded. I don't know why this reminded me of this, um, but I wanted to make sure we we did a little bit of like housekeeping before we dove into turkeys, um, because Tuesday, May fifteenth, in Detroit, I'm going to be at a backcountry hunters and anglers campfire storytelling event. 
Um, so these things have been uh, starting to pop up across the country. There was a really big one at the BHA Rendezvous in Boise, Idaho, uh, two weeks ago at the big Rendezvous event. Um, but we've got one in Detroit at the Filson store in Detroit, and I'm going to be one of the storytellers there spinning a yarn of some sort. I'm not 100% what story or what stories I'm going to tell, but uh, people should definitely come. Uh, it is going to be, like I said, Tuesday, May 15th. The first 40 tickets sold are going to be invited to like a VIP meet and greet with the storytellers, such as myself and others. Um, that's going to be at the Filson store from 5.30 to 6.30. And then after that, the main event is going to be at the Detroit Bus Company, which I don't know if that's a brewery or if that's a theater or it's some kind of venue, uh, but it's called Detroit Bus Company. It's in Corktown. It's from 7 to 9 o'clock Tuesday, May 15th. So if you live in Michigan or Ohio or Ontario or somewhere close to Detroit, you should definitely come out for the BHA storytelling event. Um, I'll be there. Ronnie Bame, who's been on the Meat Eater podcast, and he runs a hunting dog podcast. He's going to be telling a story. Tom McGraw is on the national board for BHA. He's going to be there. Um, a whole slew of other folks. So should be good. Um, you might be sick of my stories now, though, I guess, if you listen to this podcast. But just in case you're not, that's my promo for the day. Um, turkeys, though. I wanted to start our episode with two things. I want to talk about a bunch of stories, turkey hunting stories, because I know that Dan, you've got some new stories, and Spencer, you've got some new stories. I've got a little of a preview story when it comes to turkeys. We've got a bunch of questions from listeners about turkeys uh, that people sent in tonight that I want us to tackle. Um, But I also want to share a few turkey fun facts and a couple good quotes. Um, Have either one of you guys read the book, The 10th Legion by Tom Kelly? I have not. No. Have either of you heard of it? Nope. No. Okay, well, it's kind of like the holy text of turkey hunting. I've been recommending this book over and over by so many people. It's kind of this legendary book. If, if there's any book on turkey hunting that people should read, this is the one that people always tell me, you got to read this one. So I finally started reading it. I haven't finished it yet, but I'm getting into it, and I'm, I'm really enjoying it so far. Um, so I want to read a couple quotes from that to kind of set the stage for why turkey hunting is worth having a podcast about here today. So here's here's the first quote. This is the author talking about turkey hunting. He said, The first turkey that ever came to me on the ground did it a long time ago. I sat there with my hands shaking and my breath short and my heart hammering so hard I couldn't understand why he could not hear it. The last turkey that came to me last spring had exactly the same effect. And the day that this does not happen to me is the day that I quit. That's quote number one. Now here's the second thing he says about turkey hunting. And there he, he's talking about how turkeys can sometimes get their hooks into you. I'm saying this metaphorically and that you can become just addicted to turkey hunting as I think all three of us are. But there's also highs and lows. And I think this, this can actually apply to deer hunting too. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to hear if this resonates with you guys. But here, here he is talking about those that are obsessed with turkey hunting. Quote, He will experience moments of tragedy of such a depth and feeling as to preclude them from having been written by anyone but Euripides, and he will exult in periods of piercing rapture previously understood only by willing Christian martyrs being eaten by willing lions. He will operate primarily in a climate not of desire, but of compulsion. 
This is painfully evident in my own case. I do not hunt turkeys because I want to. I hunt them because I have to. I would rather I would really rather not do it, but I am helpless in the grip of this compulsion. I feel like that perfectly describes me as a deer hunter. Uh, moments of great tragedy. Uh, not really a desire, just a compulsion. Can't help but doing it. I'm obsessed with it. It is just fully gripping. D- does that speak to you at all, Dan? Yeah, for whitetails. Uh, not so much for turkeys. Maybe, maybe oh, seven years ago, ten years ago, when my wife wasn't hunting with me, I was that guy who would go out from morning until night, basically, and just move around, set up, move, set up, move, set up, move, run and gun all day long for turkeys. And now, if I was to hunt turkeys like that last quote, my wife would not be joining me ever because I'd just wear out. You've slowed with age? No. I have a partner now who doesn't <laughs> uh, who doesn't hunt the same way that I hunt, and I like hunting with her. So I have to change my approach to it to accommodate her needs. You know what I mean? This is an opportunity for me to get my wife involved uh, in hunting. And so I'm going to change it. Now, when my wife's not there with me, I'm, I'm like, I'm still moving. Right. But because now I have a sidekick with me when it comes to turkey hunting, uh, I change it a little bit because you can't take someone who is not as passionate about something and just dive in and go hard. She likes to turkey hunt, but she's not like we are when it comes to that. I hear you. And that's that's cool. That's that it's yeah. it's been fun to be able to hear about you talking about getting her into it and how she's been enjoying it over the years. Um yeah. I can I can totally get that. And what about you, Spencer? Do you still have the fire? Or are you taking your wife out? Or where do you stand when it comes to the turkey hunting obsession? Uh, I would say for myself, it's like less about the turkeys and more about what spring means. Um, It's like months of cabin fever. And then this is something that breaks that. And especially this year, we had a blizzard that was just like 10 days ago. Um, So to go out, like a couple mornings ago when it was 50 and there were birds chirping and like you can hear the creeks rushing with water. Um, that's way, way more special to me than like the, the kill or the reward or the chase of a turkey. That's kind of a byproduct. Um, that stuff is super fun. But if I like had to choose in, in another world where the turkey rut and the deer rut were the same time, um, I don't think I would ever choose turkey hunting over deer hunting, but I I know I wouldn't, but because it's in the spring and everything else that goes along with it. uh, Yeah. I'm really passionate about it then. Yeah. No, I I agree with that. That is definitely one of the coolest things about turkey hunting is it's that it just, I feel like turkey hunting heralds spring like this spring is officially started when you start hearing the turkeys gobble and you can get out there. And like you said, hearing the, the, the world wake up around you in the morning, that's just a good feeling. But man, there is something about gobbling turkeys that just gets you fired up. And the, the fact that you can talk kind of that you can engage with with those critters and go back and forth that has just like 
that's super addicting to me. Like I, I get, I know we've talked about this in the past, Dan, how even though we aren't pulling the trigger lots of times, it's fun just to be out there to be a part of it. Like just to take other people to kind of call for other people, get them out there just to be part of the hunt. Um, I love just being part of the whole process. Um, so man, I'm really glad it started. My season just opened here yesterday. Um, and I didn't go out. I'm actually, I have to save my tag for the last weekend of this season because I'm doing a hunt with some folks coming down and I want to save my tag for that. So I'm kind of just scouting and I'm going to take my nephew out and try to get him a bird. And I'm just going to go out some mornings, just sit out there and just listen to the birds and practice my calling and stuff. Um, and, and that's almost just as much fun. Just like being in it is what I love. So Spencer, you said that you had a snowstorm recently, then you got out there. You want to kick us off with your turkey of the of the year story? Uh, well, it came on probably, I think it was my fifth hunt. Uh, it was with my bow. Um, and so this fifth hunt was a morning hunt out there before sunrise, trying to find the roost, um, getting close and killing a bird off the roost. And so far I'd been unsuccessful doing that. And I am quite an impatient turkey hunter. Um, if, if I can't get one in that first like two hours, I have a super, super hard time sitting in the blind beyond that. Like I, I have a hard enough time doing an all day sit during the rut, uh, for deer. So it's like pulling teeth for me to <laughs> see uh, noon on my phone and still be in a ground blind. So at that point, I, I'm typically running and gunning with, with my bow. And so this fifth hunt, it, it finally worked out. The morning was unsuccessful. I had some jakes coming to my decoys, but, but I passed um, because, like I said earlier, I'm not like – super super into the the kill and and just getting a turkey i can i can go without that if it means passing on a jake or, or waiting for a better opportunity and so uh that afternoon doing some running and gunning i, I caught a flock um going up a hill and i tucked in some cedars and the, the timing was like perfect as soon as i tucked in the cedars it was probably 30 seconds later the hen came through a shooting lane and following her was the tom that i ended up shooting it was no calling involved it was uh kind of what a lot of my haunts end up being that it's, it's more of an ambush than like uh your typical bring them to you setup. and uh that was it that was my archery tag this season are you just trying to get in front of them uh it, it varies on the setup. I saw these turkeys leaving a field edge and heading up this hill that I was quite familiar with. And so uh, with that, yeah, I just ran to the top of the hill and tucked in some cedars, had a pretty good idea of where they were going, and, and it worked out there. Nice. So wh when you're drawing on a turkey in that kind of situation with your bow did you did you wait for him to have his head down or look in the other direction or did you just draw and shoot and not worry about him catching your movement or were you masked well enough in those cedars how'd you get the shot off well luckily i had the hen come through first and so once the hen came through i knew the others wouldn't be far behind so had had it been the other way around that it was tom first hen second i wouldn't have killed one um so the hen came through i drew 
and the town was right there. So it was uh, just perfect timing for it all to work out like that. Awesome. Was he strutting? Uh, no, they they were just walking through. They didn't know I was there. Uh, like I said, it was just pure ambush. Nice. Was um, what was the what, what's the talking been like so far? You said this is your fifth hunt, so five hunts so far. A lot of gobbling so far. Not a lot. What's the what's the kind of action been like on that front? So the the flocks have definitely um, breaking or they're breaking up at this point, but it, it wasn't, but like a week ago when I was still seeing birds that were, uh, you know, 20 of them together at a time and midday finding flocks that were staying out of the snow and staying out of the rain. And, and you'd find dozens of them, you know, tucked under cedars and stuff like that. But now that we have some consistent weather and nice weather, um, I'm finding a, a lot of toms that have been you know, gobbling midday and they're coming out of the roost fired up and, and, Usually it seems like there's a lull, like right after they come out of the roost, they might go, you know, 30 or 40 minutes and, and you don't hear them gobbling too much. But these last couple of days, uh, as I've been doing some more scouting and stuff, it, it's been way more active than, you know, we saw a week ago when we had lows in the teens and, and snow and stuff like that. I love that sound. What, how I, I was doing, um, I was talking to a bunch of people when I was at BHA at the rendezvous about this. Um, I'm curious what you guys would say. How would you describe, going back to the talk of the gobbles, how would you describe that moment when you hear the first gobble of the day? Because I feel like for me that's always special. Um, how would you describe what you're feeling at that moment, Spencer, when you hear that first one fire off? Uh typically some relief that I know I'm within earshot of one. I would say that's always my first reaction. Like, Oh, good. I, I know they're roosting over there. Um, but beyond that, it's, it's just exciting. I love, love their aggression. Like a pheasant goes off and then they get right back at them or you hear an owl <laughs> yeah. and they get right back at them or someone starts a pickup and, and they're getting at them. I, I love that part of it. That I, I love how uh, furious they get about every other noise. I've always wondered like why, why they do that. Like what's the, what's the evolutionary benefit for turkeys to gobble like on any loud noise like that? I, I'm, I'm sure someone, I'm sure there's, some kind of biologist that could speak to that. Have you guys ever heard anything for, for why they do that? I heard it's, it's they call those a shock gobble Yeah, uh, is what I've heard. And I think it is because they are so fired up, you know, as far as, you know, it's, it's breeding season that anything they're, they're, they're ready to gobble. So if and like, it's, it's just weird. I, and I don't, like you said, I don't know any scientific facts about it, but um, it's just like they're so amped up this time of year that anything really sets them off. Yeah. What about what about you for that first gobble of the day, Dan? What's going through your head? Well, it just lets me know, just like kind of what Spencer said about, okay, now I know I'm in the right spot, or or and it lets me know like it's game time now, right? I, I got to put my coffee down. I got to pick up my call and it's, it, you know, it's time to get serious and, and locate them. And then that next one goes off and then, okay. So if this one doesn't work, this one's talking back to me. And then just, they, they all kind of, every time there's a gobble, it's almost like another piece of the strategy has been put into place. And, and it just, 
during that period of time, that first one lets me know, okay, you know, it's uh, time to time to get serious. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have that same feeling too. Like I get in my head, I feel like my little voice says like, all right, it's game time. And then I think lots of times, like literally a smile, like creeps onto my face when that starts happening. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I heard you had a crazy hunt, Dan, you got to tell us what happened to you this weekend. Well, I'm going to start on Friday morning. Right. And for a lot of people, you know, especially the guys up north, north of Iowa that are hunting, you know, turkey hunting in the snow. I've seen plenty of pictures of guys pose, posing with their turkeys with a fan spread in about, you know, two inches, three inches of snow. But when I stepped out of the truck, I picked up my buddy. Um, I stepped out of the truck. It was 22 degrees. Uh, and this was not a turkey. This was not a blind hunt. We were just kind of walking this field edge and set up in this fence row. And it was the coldest turkey hunt I've ever been on. Typically, you know, I'm used to hunting 40, maybe 40, low 40s in the mornings to, you know, maybe the 50s in the mornings. And then that kind of warms up gradually throughout the day. But it was freezing cold. So I had all my uh, late season deer hunting stuff on. And, and the sun came up and they just, they started to gobble like crazy. And it was, it was money. It was like, I can't believe this is going to happen on the very first day. And I didn't, I didn't even at this point have my turkey tags purchased. I was specifically going to call for my buddy. And I really hoped, uh, that one was going to come his way. Um, we, we listened to him gobble. They hit the ground, and, and I hunt and live kind of by an airport, and a plane went over right over where we were hunting, and it shut every bird off. We could hear birds gobbling, you know, like a long ways away, nothing within, <laughs> you know, any of the properties that we could hunt on, but the birds shut off. We tried calling. I saw one pitch down, and he never worked, or one turkey. I couldn't tell if it was, a, you know, hen or a, a tom, but... It pitched down into the field. I couldn't see where it went. We got up. We went back to behind his house. He owns a little bit of property. Set up in a blind. Started calling. Had some more birds talking to us. Nothing ever came in. And uh, then I had to go to kindergarten roundup. <laughs> kindergarten roundup. I remember you mentioned this uh, the other day on, on your podcast, I think. Yeah. Yep. How did that so, go? Oh, kindergarten roundup, you know. It's basically a introduction to kindergarten for a preschooler. My daughter was jacked up about it because one of her preschool friends is in the same class as her, and uh, she's just really fired up about going to kindergarten and learning all the cool stuff that kindergarten, you know, get gets to kindergartners get to learn about. <laughs> cool, cool. So then we pack the whole family in the car. We head south uh, to my my whitetail farms. I guess you want to call them. This is typically where we, we set up. We went and me and my wife drove into this cattle pasture that we've started off with the last three years. Um, the first year we started hunting in this spot, she got a turkey right off the roost uh, one morning. The next year, things didn't work out um, and she was pregnant. So, you know, she it was a little bit more difficult for her. And then um, this year... We, I went right up on the timber. I didn't, 
I wasn't, I didn't put the blind in the pasture. I put the blind right against the fence line that separates the pasture from this big section of timber. Um, and again, we get in there early. Uh, we get chased by some cattle a little bit, which is freaky. <laughs> if you guys have never been chased by cattle or horses and all you hear is the, the, the ba-dum, 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 ba-dum. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> coming at you louder louder and louder and louder and, and you can't see where they're at because it's pitch black <laughs> and then you catch you catch their eyes and then you got to go oh hey you know to get them uh-huh. they, you know they're chickens so they turn around and run away but anyway you know right away my my wife is so tired because she's still breastfeeding throughout the night in our little asshole doesn't sleep very well and uh so she she falls asleep and then it was funny because i was looking at her right when that first gobble that we talked about went and her eyes just slowly opened and got real big and she's like okay it's time to do this and i started calling and they started responding calling responding and then i could hear them fly down and then they shut off and that was that was it for that the rest of that day, um, we bounced around to two more spots, uh, did some calling, and it was like an off switch got hit. And there was a ton of birds gobbling throughout the that morning, but as soon as they flew down, it was over. They, hmm. I have a feeling they were henned up pretty bad. And, and what I saw driving from the road around the section was... I, I, you would see a couple toms out strutting in the field, and they were right there with all these hens. Uh, they weren't leaving their side. So, um, and I'm not the best caller ever when it comes to turkey calls. And so, you know, so instead of going out later that night, I basically just hung around, played with the kids. It was such a beautiful day out. You know, it was one of those days where you can feel the warmth. Finally, spring has, you know, made it here. So I, I basically coming. just, yeah, hung outside and played, man. It was just, it was really fun. Um, had a good meal with the, um, had a good meal with the, the fam, my mom and stepdad, and um, just hung out. Went to bed that night. Middle of the night, my son wakes up and he is breathing really, really weird. He's going, <clears throat> like, I'm like, oh no, not pneumonia again, because he, he had pneumonia. And I'm just like, oh my God, you know, not, not trying to act selfishly, but I was like, oh my God, it's over. Right. (laughs) I, I'm, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to hang out here with him. You know, that's what a a dad does. So we gave him some Tylenol. He settled down. His breathing kind of went back to normal. His temperature went away. And I was just like, man, this is weird. So I went back to sleep. My alarm went off. So I went over to my uh, wife who was sleeping. I was like, so what do you want me to do? I, if we have to go back home, I still have to go out and get the blind because I I don't want to leave it up over, you know, until who knows when I'm going to be back. And with all the theft problems that I've been having on the property, I don't want to leave it up there for potentially a month. So my wife's like, just go hunt. And then if, as soon as, you know, whenever, whatever happens, pack it up and then we'll go. Well, I get a text. So so anyway, I I leave. I go and I go to the blind. I get a text. My son's up and he's doing fine, right? So there's no problem. Well, (laughs) 
the turkeys weren't going as crazy as they were the the day before, the morning before, but they were more responsive. So I would call, they would answer. I would call, they were answer. And they were roughly in the same spot. So typically they are across this this valley. They're roosted up on these big oak trees and then they pitch down uh, to the bottom and they work their way up to this cattle pasture. And I was calling, responding, calling, responding. I heard them fly down, call a little bit, respond, call a little bit, respond. It quieted down just for a minute. And all this happened, you know, like 10 minutes, right? And this is my absolute favorite part of turkey hunting is when you can hear them strut before you can see them or before they gobble. So you're you're hearing that and he gobbled the, for the first time i don't know if he saw me walk in and that's why he didn't gobble out of the roost but this bird came from a completely different direction and he hammered at about 50 yards and it's one of those where you get these this tingle up your you know up your back you're really fired up i'm in a blind and i froze like he can see me through the blind you know what i mean like if i move now he's going he's going to see me but i was in a blind so so he called once and I couldn't see him, right? And I, I'm slowly, slowly leaning my head out of the blind. And so I don't see him. I don't see him. And he, he but I can still hear the boom. And then he, you can hear him strut and drag his tips of his wings in the leaves, right? Making that noise. It's just, and it's not windy. So you, it's perfect. You know he's there, but you can't see him. So I get out. I put my gun down. I get out my slate call that I've had for like 10 or 15 years, man. It's one of the first slate calls I ever bought. And it was just a he goes again. And he's like 30 yards from the blind this time. And I, I look out and I can see his head and his, and um, his, and he's in full strut. He comes out of full strut and he's trying to make his way through the fence to my decoys that are out in the, cattle pasture so he finally found him and and i'm like i am not set up for this because i my window was into the timber with the blind and so i had to go to the side i had to open the blind um it's like a big t zipper so the, the zipper runs up and then out and then it, it all folds down so i had to go up to the top and open like four inches over and four inches down and i took the 20 gauge and i stuck it out the window and he made his way through the uh through the fence and he took maybe five steps and boom and i don't like if i was to spine a deer right and just hit his off button i would never laugh at it for some reason i don't but when you shoot a turkey and you shoot them good and you know they're dead there's a little part of me that laughs and I know this sounds bad, but he just went, and this like no flopping, like just no flopping. I hit him with the the full load, and he shut off. And I was just like, I I was on cloud nine. Like if I had tap dance <laughs> shoes on, I'd be I would have been tap dancing in the timber. You know, I was like singing songs, and I was just like, I just I don't know. It it turned. It turned everything that was bad in life good at that moment. And I don't know. It was 
It was a it was a good beard, man. Twenty six pounds, the longest longest spurs I've ever had on a turkey at an inch and three sixteenths. And he had a ten inch beard, which is above average for what I typically shoot. So uh great great bird. And when I was going to clean him out, he had a spur from another bird wedged in his one of his breasts that was broken off that is crazy i saw you post that that's yeah. awesome yeah i wish i would have taken a picture of it because it looked like it had been there for a month so it there was it was about a oh a penny maybe a nickel size fester and i was digging in it because i'm like what is that and i pulled this hard thing out of it i got a needle nose plier pulled this hard thing out of it kind of shook it off and it was the tip of another spur and i was like i'd never seen that before i'd seen birds who have been shot uh, and then they get that fester and you pretty much can't even use the breast so i just cut that little piece off and threw it threw it away and, and saved the rest of the meat but man just you know and I, there's this song by a band called the nappy roots and it's called like good day and it's gonna be a good day and all my problems gonna go away and that song was just playing in my head and i don't know it was a good day <laughs> that's what turkey hunting's all about right there man you had they, they did the thing like they they did the thing that is yep. for me i just want them to do that thing <laughs> i don't that's cool yep are you gonna get to be able to go out anymore and take your wife out try to get her bird or anything Man, I went out and I took her to, I went back home. So I shot my bird at 635, 630-ish, right? So I, my, the after I shot this bird and I took two minutes to celebrate its life, you know, and thank, you know, like, man, this is awesome. I get to deal with this. I shut down my celebration. I shut down my blind. I got I pulled my truck back there, packed everything up, went back to the house, got my wife because my son was feeling better at this point. We went out to the second place that we always go. And when she shuts the door and we head to the tailgate to load the gun and, and pack up, we heard a gobble. And I'm like, this bird is right where we are going to go. It's going to be money. She's going to, you know, she's going to get a bird today too. So we went, we walked over there, set up and it was the same bird, man, that was hand up the day before. And we called and he gobbled, we called and he gobbled and he didn't get any closer. And finally he shut off and, uh, we, we bounced around to a couple more spots, but then ultimately it, this was on a Sunday. So we had to, uh, we had to go back and, uh, get the kids and head back home because uh the three-day vacation was over any more weekends you can go no because we we get second season shotgun so i think tomorrow is the last day and i work and she works and the kids who knows if they're going to be feeling better at all so it, our my turkey season every year is three days i i give myself three days to get it done uh, because like, like you guys know, I mean, my elk hunting and my whitetail hunting this year are taking priorities along with whatever other family vacations that we take. Um, so no, it's, uh, it's three days for us. Short and sweet and you got it done. Yep, absolutely. Awesome. And it's so much fun, man. It's like, like, like we all said earlier, I take deer hunting really serious, but 
I'll punish myself if I make a mistake in the deer woods. But if I make a mistake in the turkey woods, man, I don't care. Yeah. I like I I honestly don't even care if I kill a bird. I'm just out there, like Spencer said, just to have a good time. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's so much lower pressure, but a ton of fun. Um I and 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 I don't hunt turkeys, like you said, not nearly as obsessively, not nearly as much. But I, sometimes I wish, you know, some guys that take it really seriously, like this guy, Tom Kelly, who wrote uh, those quotes I mentioned earlier, you know, guys that hunt all spring, like two months straight, all sorts of states. That would be a ton of fun. Like sometimes I wish I could just take like two or three weeks and just go from state to state to state and just chase birds because I'm sure it'd be, you know, high action. I mean, you're just, it's different than deer hunting. Lots of times you might deer hunt for a rut week or whatever, and 85 or 90% of that week might be, you know, nothing, monotonous, you know, just being patient, waiting it out for something to happen. While turkey hunting, it's almost always, not always, but almost always action. Um, it's a, it's a good time. I've never done it, but, uh, I've, I certainly try to extend my turkey season as much as I can. I only get one tag in Michigan, but I usually try to go to Ohio for at least a day or two. And then, and then every year, anyone I can convince to, to let me go with them and call for them or something, I do that. So, so this year, like I said, I'm, I'm taking a bunch of different people. So I'm going to try to get a solid, like four weeks of turkey hunting in this year. Not, ever, not obviously hunting every day, but getting out different several days a week going out with different people and stuff. And like I said, I haven't got to actually go yet. Um, but I did have a cool turkey experience the other day. Um, on Sunday, I took my son on his first turkey hunt, quote, unquote, turkey hunt. <laughs> um, I bundled him up first thing in the morning. He woke up Sunday morning, and I opened the door to let the dogs out, and it was nice and warm out. And I stood out there waiting for the dog to take a dump, and I heard a turkey gobble off in the distance. I was like, oh, it's on. So I went and grabbed Everett, threw his jacket on, grabbed a call, and went out into the backyard and went to the end of the yard back at the edge of a cornfield. And I just started yelping. And then all of a sudden, I had three different gobblers going crazy. And I, so I was like, all right. So I just held Everett on one side, and he's looking at me with these big eyes like, what is this noise my dad's making? And and I called these gobblers over towards the house and had one of them actually come over the hill into view. And obviously, Everett had no idea what was going on, but it was pretty cool to me actually being out there with my son for the very first time um, with turkeys gobbling. So that was a proud dad moment. And, uh, and then the next day I did go to this property that I'm a new property that I'm going to be hunting in a couple of weeks with some folks and, um, got out there. Like I woke up at four in the morning in my house and it's a two hour drive to this property. So I barreled out there four in the morning, got there like just at daybreak, snuck out to this little high point in the, it's kind of where three different fences, fence rows all come together and you can see into three different fence or sorry, you can see into three different fields from this high point. And so I sat there for the morning, did just a couple of yelps just to try to get some stuff to talk, to hear where they might be roosted and heard a few birds roosted off in one direction. Not quite what I was, I was hope I was thinking this place would be loaded with them. Um, but I heard just one or two off in one corner. But, uh, after like the first hour, maybe half hour, hour, one bird came out into the field, one nice big gobbler, and then I saw like three, four, five hens over there. And then three jakes came out over there. And then while I was watching them, I turned to look the other direction to one of his other fields. And I see two gobblers come off the opposite hill over there. And they start walking my direction. And then they come through. And then they disappear. And then 
that initial gobbler walks all the way up towards me. And I had just called, like I said, a few yelps kind of right when I got there in the morning. He came all the way to like within like 30 yards of me and walked past. And I just watched him do his thing. And you know how they get when they think there should be a hen somewhere nearby, but they can't see it. He'd stop and he'd stick his neck up and just spin and his you know, turn his head in all directions, looking, 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 nothing. Then he'd walk 10 yards and stop, put his head back up, look, look, look. Um, that was kind of fun because usually in that kind of situation, I would be shooting that bird. Um, so that would be en- ended. But in this case, it's kind of like passing on a buck. I just got to watch him do his thing up close, which was fun. And, uh, and then two more gobblers came tearing over from the third field over my direction. So I saw like six different gobblers from that spot in the first hour and a half or two hours of the day. And then I spent the rest of the day scouting for whitetails. And over the course of my walkings and ramblings, I bumped into two other groups of three gobblers strutting around with hens and stuff. So that was fun just to see them and hear them and get to get my blood pumped and primed for the rest of the season. So that was my start to turkey hunting. And then uh, this weekend I'm going to take my nephew out. So hopefully we'll have a good turkey story to come from that. Um, It's exciting stuff. I love it. And now I think would be a good time for a quick word from our partners at Whitetail Properties. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Tim Woods, a land specialist out of central Ohio. And Tim is going to be telling us about how to better understand what the deer hunting neighborhood is like around a potential property. Well, I guess, you know, I guess there's, there's a couple of different ways to look at it. If, if you're a non-resident uh, looking to buy out of state, um, you've got to trust your, trust your agent, you know, us with whitetail properties. Um, this is what we do. Um, you know, it's, it, the fact that, you know, I'm here in Ohio, I've got my territory. Um, you know, I've got a fairly large territory, but I'm, pretty well grounded in what pockets of areas are good. You know, I mean, granted we're in Ohio, not everywhere in Ohio is good. Um, or even the given states that you're looking for. So you've got to trust your, trust your agent, um, and, and let them do the legwork for you. Um, and don't be scared to walk properties, talk to neighbors, um, and, you know, look at bragging boards and so forth. And that, you know, social media is a great way. A lot of people, you know, a lot of people like to talk about their big deer. So you can get out there and, uh, kind of scratch the surface a little bit and see um, what an, what a particular area is like, how much pressure it gets, how many hunters are there. But I would say that the biggest thing would be to trust your agent um, when it comes to, you know, a high-quality area. Um, you know, there's always going to be those areas where you have big landowners and very little hunting pressure and guys that are killing high-caliber deer. So, you know, again, back to just trust your agent and uh, let them do the legwork for you and uh you know put some boots on the ground walk some properties and go from there if you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that tim currently has listed for sale visit whitetailproperties.com backslash woods that's w-o-o-d-s i pulled some fun facts related turkeys that i want to drop on you guys let's hear them yeah i i i i haven't done a ton of, you know, when it comes to whitetails and stuff, I read everything, right? We read all sorts of research and literature on, on whitetails and all these articles and stuff. I don't do a whole ton of turkey reading, um, but there's some interesting stuff. So get this. Did you guys know that you can tell a bird's sex and age from his droppings? Did you guys know that about, about turkeys? 
I did not know that. No, enlighten me. Yeah. So male turkey droppings are J-shaped and female turkey droppings are spiral-shaped. So you go out there and you look for the poopy J's and you know that's a gobbler. And then the larger the diameter of the turd, the older the bird. So remember that. Now, have have you heard guys say that about like uh, what deer crap looks like or what buck crap looks like versus doe crap? I've heard I've heard different kind of uh, theories on that. I've heard like the bigger, clumpier ones are bucks versus your smaller, very separated pellets would be does. Um, have you heard something similar? Well, I think we've all kind of heard that like grandfather wisdom that yeah this. This is what deer or this is what buck crap looks like. It's the big stuff, and this is doe crap, the little stuff. But in in reality, I I think what it is um, that when you're seeing like the stuff that looks like it was made by a rabbit, that means that they're eating um, like grains and harder things like that, um, walnuts. Uh, and whereas if it's like smoother uh, kind of piles, then uh, they've been feeding on like fruits or grass, things things that are softer for their diet. So, I, I've I've heard a lot of that before, but I I believe the the real answer is that no, you can't tell a buck from a doe, but you can tell what they've been eating. Interesting. That makes sense. I've never paid much attention to it, but it's if that's true, if if you could wrap your head around that, that would be an interesting thing to look at because you could determine what the deer are focused on right now as the food source then to a degree. So you could see based off droppings, if you should be focusing on something like soft mass, like apple trees or something like grains. Um, that'd be an interesting thing to, to consider. Yeah. I, I try to, I try to take that into account because so much of what I hunt is agriculture, soybeans, cornfields, stuff like that. So it's not like uncommon for me to find the, the, stuff that's in piles but that gets me thinking like okay where was this deer at because he's obviously not spending all of his feed time like on a field edge so uh it, and I'm, I'm not i shouldn't say this is absolutely the answer but i, I believe uh that that's what it is did I ever did I ever tell you a story dan about my <laughs> uncle's dad and the deer turd story have not i'd, I'd love to hear it though <laughs> so <laughs> So he this so this this is how the story goes at least. Um this guy, we'll call him Bob, was taking a friend of his out deer hunting for the first time and um as Bob walked along, he'd point at deer poop and he'd say, "Well, that's that's old deer poop." And the guy would look at it and say, "Oh, okay." And they keep walking, he'd point to another set of pellets and say, "Oh, there's some that's a little bit fresher." And then uh, they kept walking on and they kept going and going and going. And finally, all along, Bob had been carrying some like chocolate-covered raisins in his pocket. And so he'd been pointing at real turds all this whole time, and his friend was getting more and more curious about it. And finally, he drops some right in the ground in front of him when his friend wasn't looking, and he reaches down, and he grabs them, he says, now these, these are fresh deer turds, really, really fresh deer turds. And the buddy <laughs> looks at him, and he's like, man, how do you know this? How do you know these are fresh? And he's like, well, the way you can tell for sure is you, you taste them. And he pops one in his mouth. He's like, yeah. Oh yeah, this was this was just a couple hours ago. <laughs> the buddies looking at him like, "Dude, you are nuts." <laughs> I always liked that. I was like, "Man, that's a good way to fool a buddy." 
Um, no, that's nuts. <laughs> okay, how about this one? Did you guys know? And that this, I, I did not know this. I, I'll just say it. Wild turkeys, their head, gobblers' heads actually change colors with their level of excitement or emotion. So I always just assumed that like a blue-headed turkey was just always a blue-headed turkey, and a red-headed gobbler is just a red-headed gobbler. And some are white, some are red, some are blue, some are pinkish. And I just thought that was like each individual turkey or sometimes older turkeys had a certain coloring. Is that just me being ignorant or do you guys not realize that that the same bird can be all the different colors based on his excitement? I did know that. Yeah. Yeah. And and I've seen it happen. And like the coloration is a bit of wisdom that you want to use if you're trying to reap turkeys. They say that uh, if you're trying to find the ideal reaping situation uh, and reaping is, if you don't know, where you basically hide behind a fan and use that to you know, cut the distance between you and the gobbler and bring the gobbler to you. Uh, but anyway, they say the ideal reaping Tom is one with a white head because that's like maximum aggression, one with maximum attitude who's most likely to approach you hiding behind a tail fan. Man, that's so cool. I, I don't know how I missed that in my in my years of turkey hunting, but that for some reason makes turkeys even cooler to me that they've got like chameleon heads <laughs> uh, or like <laughs> mood ring heads maybe is the better way to say it. Have you ever – I tell you what. What's that? I tell you what. I, I was sitting on a ridge one day. I fell asleep. Um, one of those scenarios I called for a little bit. It was midday, fell asleep. I woke up and down this uh, little – crick system i see out in a field a tom with a decent beard and he had a red head he was you know not fired up at all and he was you know eating down eating and then i started calling and he perked up and you know he went from that skinny little body to he started puffing up and his head went from kind of this red to a blue and then he started coming in and then he started getting in full strut and then i watched it change from blue to this pure white color and it was it was one of the coolest things i had ever seen and just the light hitting it and watching his head change colors was i don't know that's that's where i learned learned that from I don't know how I've never seen it or never noticed. I'm sure it's happened, but I guess I've never been paying attention enough to the head. Now, what happens? So when you shoot the bird, is it stuck at whatever color it was or does it revert to something else? I've never paid attention to that either. You'll see a change. Like I've, I've shot ones with red heads and then, you know, I'll breast them out, but not take pictures for, you know, until hours later. And by that point they'll, they'll have a blue head quite often. I I've seen them, you know, like, keep the red head or, or maybe it's a, a different shade of red, but, uh, I think after they're dead, you'll see a change there. That makes sense. Have you, have you reaped a Turkey in before Spencer? I have not. Um, I, I would love to try it because like that is my style of being aggressive. I don't care if I mess up on a Turkey, like, like Dan said earlier, who cares? Just a Turkey. But, uh, that's something I'll definitely consider. And we have like the wide open topography here that would, uh, you know, work well for that. So, oh, yeah. uh, it, it'll happen. Yeah, that would be, I've never tried it 
and I know it's not legal in all places, I don't think, so if you're listening, you'd have to make sure to check up on your regulations around that, but it looks like a super cool way to just to literally like crawl across a field towards a gobble or towards a gobbler holding that fan up in front of you trying to cut the distance i've heard like they can then they get super aggressive too so lots of times they just come charging in at it and then at the last second you've got to drop that fan and pull up with your gun or whatever try to get a shot when he's five yards away from you or whatever coming at you i mean talk about high intensity turkey hunting that yeah i'd love to try that yeah that'd be cool okay what would you guys call a group of turkeys what would be the proper term for a group of turkeys, Dan, what do you think? Uh, I'm just going to go with whatever other game bird, a flock. Spencer? Uh, I would go with the, the same thing. So I do think that is one of the terms that can be used. There's a whole slew. I found a whole bunch of different ones. But two that I saw that I had not heard before, you can call the supposedly one of the official terms for a group of turkeys is a gang or a rafter, a rafter of turkeys. I also call them once I was turkey hunting with my wife and a whole bunch of Jake's came in and like in the heat of the moment, I don't know. I've never even used this word in my entire life ever before, but this group of three Jake's came like barreling in towards us. And I'm like, Oh man, there's a whole passel of them coming in. And so now I always refer to a group of turkeys as a passel of turkeys. So huh. uh, write that one down. I'll pass. <laughs> how fast? How <laughs> fast do you think a turkey can move on foot? What's the highest 20, speed? Twenty-two point five miles per hour. Is that right? It was like the same <laughs> speed as Usain Bolt. I, I saw twenty-four miles an hour, but that's oh, essentially okay. the same thing. <laughs> okay, that's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I want to say that like during Usain Bolt's. 100 meter dash record time and I, I don't remember what year 12 it might have been or whatever that like his top speed is the same as like a turkey's top speed that's that's a great great line for an announcer during the olympics or something <laughs> <laughs> now now what about He's flight? Running like a scared tom <laughs> uh flight my guess would be like 40 55 miles per hour in flight mm. is that is the top that's speed that's crazy supposedly. Because I read somewhere that the way a turkey is built and how physics works, like, they shouldn't even be able to take off with their body weight. Oh, yeah. It doesn't look like it. Yeah, they have, like, one of the lowest wing load scores. I think it's called wing load. It's, it's like the ratio of, uh, you know, your wings to your body weight. And uh, th- theirs is so far off the chart that it's, like you said, uh, hard to fathom that that they can take flight. They are the most ungrate, ungraceful looking animal ever when they take flight. I'd say. I mean, they can be yeah. so cool looking when they're strutting around, and then when they try to take off and fly somewhere, sometimes like or get going, it's 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 not quite as impressive. Um, yeah. or or they fly out of the tree. It's like, especially during deer season when you'll hear them fly up at, at night or you'll hear them fly down. It's like someone's just throwing cannonballs out of a tree. Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys ever try to simulate that noise? One of the things I used to try when I was kind of calling the turkeys on the roost is I would try to simulate the sound of the fly down of hens. So I'd like take my hat or something and I'd hit it against my, my thigh or something to make it like that. 
noise as like they're flying down. Um, I don't know if that's ever really helped my calling sequence in the morning, but have you guys ever tried that at all? Uh, uh-uh. I, I I have tried it. I like the added realism, but as far as like that being the difference between you getting a gobbler in your setup and it not, I, I, <laughs> I can't. I, I, right, I don't know, but I don't think it hurts either. They're not going to hear that and be like, "Hey, that what's that asshole doing?" With <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what's he doing? With that? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so so on that note, uh, I want to jump to some listener questions because I want to get some of these answered and then maybe hop back to a couple other stories. But uh, Jacob on Twitter asked us this. He said. How in the living hell do you kill one of these damn things? Because I have no freaking clue. <laughs> so that's a, that's, could give us a lot to talk about. But uh, if you had one, like your one best turkey hunting tip for someone who has no freaking clue, Spencer, what would it be? Uh, find the dumb ones. And, you know, that can be a number of factors like time of year right now. Like I said, the turkeys are breaking off and so they're getting a lot more aggressive and you know not making the best decisions all the time and so that makes them dumber uh trying to find birds that are unpressured maybe flocks that are living in mrs jenkins backyard that are eating out of a bird feeder but roosting in a pasture you know a quarter mile away those ones that uh have never been bothered and so those would be obviously the dumber ones and and then as far as like species too i think the guys who are uh you know the the slam holders and the people who hunt all over the country say that Easterns are the most difficult to get into range and uh, the hardest to, to, you know, match their vocalizations were like a Merriam's is the, the easiest to, you know, talk to and fool. And so another, you know, notch as far as finding a dumb one, a, a Merriam's would likely give you better odds than an Eastern. I've, I've heard that too. How much how much of that is just pressure related? You know, the eastern turkeys are getting hunted by so many more guys. Do you think it's that, or do you think there's actually some kind of genetic difference? Have you heard? And uh, it, I, I know s- I know there's a genetic difference, but I mean a genetic difference in mm-hmm. why they're more susceptible to hunting. I would say that's definitely part of it. Like you think about what a stereotypical Merriam's habitat is like. Like you could spot these things, you know, from a mile away, whereas an eastern is probably in really dense timber and so it's just more difficult to i don't know identify where that bird's at and, and get them into range uh than it would be the type of terrain that a Merriam's lives in yeah dan what about you your one best tip for the guy that has no freaking clue just dude, i don't know <laughs> like um this is a this is the reason i'm successful at turkey hunting or I was this year is because I knew where they've been roosting historically. So if you get the opportunity, uh, go out and do some more pre morning scouting. If I can even say that my system's starting to shut down cause I'm overly tired because we're recording so late. But what I'm trying to say is go out before your season starts early in the morning, walk around, call a little bit, locate them, uh, and then just leave. And then when it's time to uh, do hunting season, you know, it's you got a couple of options right off the bat that you can start off with. And those are going to be your your best options. Yeah. 
that's kind of what I would say too. I mean, I, I taught myself to turkey hunt with like no, I no idea. I didn't, hadn't gone out with anyone who knew what they're doing. Um, I just read some magazine articles and watched like a YouTube video or something about how to call and stuff. I just kind of figured it out. And I think the most important stuff is number one, just find some gobblers. So do what you just said, find where they're roosted. So just walk around and listen to them at night when they're up in their roost, find some birds, and then just learn how to do a basic Yelp. Just figure out that that one basic hen sound. And that's enough to call in a gobbler. I mean, I knew how to do nothing but the very most basic Yelp. Um, and I was able to call birds in my very first year. Now I didn't kill them. Um, but I had some good action, had some close calls and stuff like that. So that's number one right there. If you can do that, I think you can at least like get into the action on some birds and then you can figure out the nuance and figure out all the other things that might help you close the deal more often, but that can at least get you going. Um, there's plenty more. I mean, if you're trying to bow hunt, that can be more challenging. Or if you're trying to hold out for a certain big, big mature Tom, or if you're trying to kill them in a bunch of different States, sure. Things can get more difficult, but to just get some stuff happening, you don't need to be some kind of savant hunter to, to have some basic Turkey hunting action. Um, what were you say? I, I would go back to like Dan's point. I asked, like one of the best fishermen that I know, I asked him one time, like, what is the single best piece of advice you've ever gotten or given? And he said, don't fish memories. And so, you know, meaning that if you nailed the walleye here like two years ago, that doesn't mean that they're going to be right on that hump again. And that's something that I think applies to turkeys, like as far as their roost. And this is something that I like fail at every year and I have to relearn every year. I see turkeys roost in a tree and it's like in my head that, okay, well, they're going to roost there again, but that's not always the case. Turkeys are not married to a roost. And more often it's like that they're going to roost somewhere in that Creek bottom again within like a, you know, football field stretch. Uh, but they're not necessarily going to be like in that tree and they're not going to pitch down out of that tree into the same little opening. And so just like learning to be mobile or flexible in, in that first, you know, half hour of daylight is, is a big part of it because I have, uh, messed that up a lot of times where I'm, I'm overconfident that like, yep, they're going to fly out of that branch and they're going to land on, you know, that piece of dirt and I'm going to kill them there. And that, that's not that simple. I've, and you could go you could go into like all these really hardcore details like we do with whitetails where okay you're going to find where they're roost then you're going to find where they have what they call a strut zone right so it's basically a location that these turkeys hang out at part of the day and they just sit there and strut back and forth while the hens are feeding so it's you you can get into a lot of detail but i think the less you know about turkey strategy, the more successful you'll be because I, how I learned to turkey hunt was, was with my uncles and it was literally a, you walk into the woods at dark in the morning, you call, you locate them in a tree, you sit down with your decoys out in front of you, you call, you call, do they come in? Nope. Get up, move, call, put the decoys out, call, call, call. Nope move and then you finally you'll run into something and then you shoot it in the face so it's pretty easy 
I don't know if it always goes quite that easily, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I like I like the freestyle nature of your approach. Yeah. Uh, what about go back to the roost uh, situation that you're mentioning there, Spencer? We got a question, a number of questions related to when birds are on a roost. So, one person asked. When the birds, when the gobblers are on the roost, is it better to remain silent and wait till they reach the ground, or should you lightly call while while they're in the tree? And then another person said, when birds are on the roost, how much calling is too much? It's kind of getting at the same thing there. Um, what would you say to those things, Spencer? Uh, I would let the real-life turkeys be the guide. And so if you hear the hens talking a lot, I think that's an invitation for you to do some talking and, and give up your location. Um, and if you, you know, let out a Yelp and you have a, a gobbler that cuts you off, I, I think that's an invite to talk a little more too. But uh, that turkey's like not going to forget where you're at. If, if you call and they don't respond, um, you know, obviously it's, it's easier to say don't overcall than it is to actually put your call away and not do it. Because, uh, you know, obviously that's that's what I think the answer is, is don't overcall. But then to actually not overcall is is really difficult to do. So I I think the best thing you can do is let the real turkeys dictate what you're doing. Man, the first year I went out turkey hunting on my own, I remember pulling up close to where I thought one was roosted. And then one sounded off just like I was hoping he would. And for like however long it was, 15 minutes or whatever, while he was up in that tree still and I was down the ground, every time he gobbled, I was yelping. He gobbled. I was yelping. He was gobbling. I was yelping. And then I just kept, if he didn't talk for like 30 seconds, I started yelping again. <laughs> 30 seconds later, I was yelping again. For like 15 minutes, if anyone was around there, they would have heard the biggest idiot just calling and calling and calling. Um, I think you're 100% right, though. I think overcalling. I call all, all the time. You do? Yeah, I, 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 t- I, talk ba- I talk back and forth with them all the time. I'm, I, I lead the conversation. I'm in charge of it. See, I've, I've found that that was my biggest mistake was calling too much. Like I would overcall. At least here, a lot of times these birds would almost – now, I, this is probably giving them too much credit, but they'd almost be like, eh, no real hen would be talking this much. Like <laughs> that, 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 that seems, something seems fishy. So I was having these birds that would gobble for a bit, and then they would like fall by the wayside. And then as soon as I started playing hard to get with them, so I would just get it to where I knew they heard me, they were interested, and then lots of times I'd, I'd stop and I'd wait a long time. And then that's when I, when I started you know, holding on, especially on the roost. Like for me on the roost – I would just do a little yel- light yelping just to get them excited and make sure they know our map. And then I usually would just stop until they fly down. Um, and then maybe I hear one go off once they're on the ground. Then I'll yelp a few more times and a couple more times as they're coming in closer and closer. But especially if they hung up or anything like that where they don't seem to be coming in anymore, but I still hear them, that shutting down and being quiet so often for me has been what has gotten them to come all the way in. They're like, okay, I know there's a hen over there. Why isn't she talking anymore? I got to go get her. Um, that for me was like the light switch moment when I started killing birds, when I started getting really picky about how often I called. So it's interesting to hear that you're the opposite. Yeah. I The way I look at it is if they're roosted with a hen and that hen, they can see and she doesn't even have to call, right? She flies down. They're going to follow her regardless of the hen that's going bananas across the valley, right? And on the opposite side, 
if there is no hen in the tree with them, they're going to, and, and let's say there's multiple birds, they're going, it's now a competition to see who can get there the fastest. That's the way I look at it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can, I can see the logic to that too. Um, now what about this scenario? This is another question we got. So what if the gobbler, what if the birds aren't talking at all? When you've got a quiet morning, nothing's gobbling off the roost, nothing's gobbling during daylight when they should be on their feet and walking around. What do you do, Dan, in that situation when the turkeys are quiet? That's a great question. And the answer to that is I go to a local diner and I eat uh, something called a river wreck, which is scrambled eggs, biscuits and gravy, hash browns, and bacon all on one massive pile. And I wash it down with Mountain Dew, and then I go and take a nap. (laughs) That's one way to approach it. I'm serious. I, I, I don't like to, you. I, dude. I don't like to hunt if they're not calling back and forth, right? I may go out, drive around the section, see where they're strutting, try to sneak up on them, and and go from there. But if they're on a different property, there's not much I can do. Yeah, Spencer, what about you? Well, if that's the case, that like you are confident the birds should be talking, and the weather's right, and the season's right, and the turkeys are there, then it's probably something you did wrong like you walked in with your you were skylined and you know every turkey in that creek bottom saw you come in there or uh you were putting up your ground blind and you were popping out the hubs and goes whoosh whoosh you know you do that five times right next to the roost well that'll probably shut them down and so if you think that like all the conditions are right for turkeys to be talking and they're not talking then i would be you know, trying to figure out what I just did to, to shut them up. Man, but, you know, there's there's some days, though, when they just aren't talking. Like, even if you didn't do anything wrong, even if you're a long ways away from there where, where they're roosted, but you'd be able to hear them. Like, I, and I, I don't know what conditions shut them down. I'm not that much of a turkey hunter to know, but I, I did just read an article before the podcast where they were talking about some research done by, I think, Mississippi State, um, where they were correlating certain conditions to gobbling activity. Um, so they did see like there was a certain, now I believe I saw like between 60 and 69 degrees temperature wise was like the optimal temperature for gobbling activity for like peak gobbling. And then like, if you got, I think, it, I think that I read that if it got hotter than that, it went downhill and then there was other possible connections to like barometric pressure um, and something else. So there are certain things and a oh, wind too. A certain amount of wind can shut down gobbling. Um, so in those situations, when I think even if like you're doing the right things, there's just going to be some days when the turkeys are just quiet, no matter what. Um, and on those kinds of days, for me, what I've done, like you said, Dan, I'll get up and move around and just try to spot and stalk them, kind of just you know, because they're, they're still going to go and go about their day, their daily routine still. So they're going to still fly down somewhere. They're still going to strut around for some, you know, at some point um, for an hour, hour and a half or two hours for first thing in the morning, <coughs> walk around with some hens and stuff. But then usually again, so at that point, if you can walk around and glass some up, then you can move in on them and maybe get them to come and do a call or something. Or the other thing that happens a lot of times is even if it's been quiet all morning, right around that like 930, between like 930 and 1030, it seems like for me, um, is when lots of times the hens 
break off from the toms. Maybe they go and they nest or whatever. And then the toms are back on the move. They're back on the hunt for another hen, it seems like. I've, I've heard a lot of people talk about this time frame, too. when It's kind of like they're cruising again, kind of like a running buck. And so it always seems to be like there's like a couple-hour lull in the late morning. And then like 10 o'clock, you hear that gobble all of a sudden out of nowhere. You haven't heard anything for three and a half, four hours, and then boom, there's that lone turkey on the hunt. And uh, lots of times that can be then the start of a good period of the day too. But maybe even if they aren't gobbling, you'll catch that cruiser at that point. So I'd like to try to move around, sit in spots you can watch, and just try. I mean, I, my I, one of my favorite hunts ever was with my dad a few years back. And this is a situation where the birds hadn't been talking at all, but we just set up in a spot we could see down a power line a long ways in either direction. We set out a decoy, and we just waited and just sit sit in glass and talk, you know, caught up on life and all that kind of good stuff. And finally, we just got lucky that uh, Tom crossed that power line like 200, 300 yards down the way. There hadn't been any talking all day, all afternoon, but we just saw him from a long ways off. And just because we were determined to sit out there and be there, we saw him. And then we were able to call and call him right in. He never, I don't think he ever gobbled. He just came in. And, um, I mean, there's something to be said about, you know, it's kind of like, during the rut, if you put in the time, even if you're not seeing lots of action, good stuff can happen. But, you know, depends on what you want out of it. Like you said, Dan, if you want the gobbling hot action and that's all you want, then going to get the river wrecker might be the better option on the slow days. <laughs> I'm a big fan of hot action. I I believe you, you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, how about this one? What what is your favorite way to serve wild turkey, Spencer? What about that one? Hmm. Go to Dan. Let me think about that. Dan, what's your go-to wild turkey recipe? I got two. Go-to number one, potatoes, carrots, cream of mushroom soup, some chopped up onions, all in a big crock pot, and then you just cook it and cook it and cook it. But first, I got to hammer it, right? You got to tenderize the meat because, uh, like, the breast is really, uh, like, wild turkey meat is a little bit tougher than your store-bought turkey meat. So I tenderize it, right? I put two, put it in between two towels, and I take a cookie roller or a, a dough roller and beat it, and then that, that typically does the trick. Or... My wife's favorite is turkey nuggets. You cut them up into about an inch by inch, and then you bread them, fry them, serve them with uh, some hot, you know, uh, do the hot sauce dance on them or barbecue it or whatever, and then serve them with blue cheese or ranch. Nice. Yeah. I like to do like a like a fried turkey nugget too with a deep fry them, kind of like fried chicken type thing. Yep. Um, but yep. I, I, don't know, I don't know where I found this recipe, but it's kind of like hot chicken. Like it's kind of a, a spicy fried chicken uh, breading. Man, that is good. I mean, that is really good. I'm actually talking about having my nephew over this weekend before we hunt, and we're going to make some of those up. So that's my favorite one. Um, and then white turkey chili is also a good a good one you can even use the the legs for that slow cook it tear it up put it in chili um or pulled turkey tacos that's another good way to use that leg meat um that's kind of tougher stringier but if you like slow slow cook it in a crock pot till it starts to break down and then just use forks to tear it all up that makes some really good turkey filling um or taco type meat um spencer did you figure out yours yet yeah so thinking about it a little more 
probably my favorite is like a, a turkey Philly. And so slicing up a breast super thin and then, uh, you know, tossing that in a pan or on a grill fairly quickly. You don't want to overcook it. And then with like some green peppers, mushrooms, onions on a hoagie. And I love that. And if the season is right, you can like find some morels to serve with it or pick some asparagus and just get like a real springtime delicacy and so that's probably my favorite turkey recipe but then I, I i'm a wild game enthusiast and so this is one thing that i think is important for people to consider as well is like uh brining do you guys do any brines for like your wild turkey or your thanksgiving turkey yeah that it's a great point i i brine anytime i'm making wild turkey i brine it first so what what is your brine that you do Real simple, sugar, salt, and lemon usually. In, uh, wa- in, in water. water in water. In water. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, now I got gotcha. you. So there's been some food science done on like. This is gotcha journalism? Is that what you're doing to me? I got gotcha. you. <laughs> <laughs> that away. So I will send you the article when we're done. But there's been some food science done about like the weight retention and the liquid retention in turkey breasts. Um, based on different brines. And so the thought with like a wet brine is that the salt like opens up the pores and then the water comes rushing in there and stuff. And so while if you brine a turkey breast like that, it will be juicier than a turkey breast that you did not brine. But what you're getting is not like natural turkey flavor. You're, you're putting water in your turkey breast. And so what's actually better is just a dry brine, like salt. And I can't remember what the, like the science is going on there. I think it's something that like when you're cooking the breast then, and you have a dry brine on there, the juice comes to the outside and it hits that salt layer and it turns around and it stays in the turkey breast. And so like a dry, a dry brine, uh, helps you retain weight better and it's giving you like a better flavor because you're not just shoving water in in your meat. Interesting. Very interesting, Spencer. Nice little uh, factoid there. I'm probably still going to shove water in my turkey breasts, but, um, (laughs) but I'm interested to to look more into that idea. You have to send me the article if you can find it. All right. Um, Speaking of you, Spencer, I don't know why I thought of this while you were talking about that. I guess I was thinking about you shooting these turkeys and putting them in dry brines. Um, but being a bow hunter for turkeys, can you talk a little about arrow placement? Because I think a lot of people maybe that are considering bow hunting for turkeys but haven't yet might get this mixed up because you see this great big round ball of a turkey and you might think of a certain spot would be the place to shoot it, but it is wrong. Can you talk about the right place to aim on a turkey with a bow? Um. I guess it's it's hard to like uh, explain it, but I think the most important thing to consider is that like people want to talk about turkey broadheads like they do deer broadheads, but the most important thing is just being accurate because what you're shooting at is about the size of a softball, you know. Although it looks like more, uh, you know, of a a basketball, that's that's not the case. There are a lot of guys, and I've done it um, multiple times in my bow hunting turkey career where a shot's just going to end with a big puff of feathers because there is like not much 
actual meat there in a strutted up tom and i think the best shot that you can take is like when a tom is turned away from you and you can you know go for like that texas heart shot obviously that's ideal because you can draw you have like a good indicator of where to aim um but uh, it's just you know important to be accurate and know where you're shooting and know that there's not you know much of a, a forgiving area there yeah. So for those who don't know what the Texas heart shot is, that would be shooting it in the vent or the the anus um, straight from behind would be the Texas heart shot. Um, or like you said, it's it's a really small vital. So you really got to know where this is at on turkey, but you can follow follow the legs up and then shoot it like the top third of the body right above the legs and a touch ahead would be about where those vitals would be. Um and then you can also try the headshot. You know, some people have you know used the specific broadheads to decapitate. Um, I've never done that. Have you ever tried that, Spencer? Uh, no, I have not. Yeah, seems. I guess you either get it done or you miss completely. But that seems to be how my bow hunting for turkeys has been. Anyways, I just usually miss the bird completely. Um, when I first started <laughs> trying to teach myself turkey hunt, I thought I should start with a bow, and uh, my first two ever shot opportunities i missed right between the legs underneath them um so then i switched to a gun and started killing a bunch of birds so i think i'm probably going to switch back one of these years but um it didn't start off too well would either one of you guys ever get a turkey mounted or have you it would have to be really unique and big because obviously turkeys don't have characteristics like deer do so it would have to be like multiple beards or unique feather configuration or like a, a I don't know three foot beard or something like that. I don't know. Huge spurs, three eyes. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I I was very close to mounting one last year. Um, I shot our state record archery Rio Grande turkey at triple beard. Um, and he's number 15 in the world with a bow. And so <laughs> I just about mounted him, but then I started like, uh, looking at the prices and I'm like, you know what? He's cool, but he's not that cool. So I didn't <laughs> Man. like, I didn't do a full strutted out mount, uh, but I got the fan and his, uh, wings. And then the, you know, I kept the spurs and the, the three beards and those are all on a plaque together is his fan the two wings the spurs and the beard but uh you know i always have that option since i have the important parts i talked to some taxidermists if i were ever to get another rio that i could you know have a full body amount done but like where does that go in a home i i don't know that that doesn't look good anywhere i don't think i've reached out <laughs> to some uses i've reached out to some museums like the smithsonian and uh some other places, I think the Natural History Museum, to see if they'd want it. Um, but there's just like a whole bunch of um, paperwork to go along with that. And so at, at this point, it hasn't happened. I reached out to Cabela's about taking it. Um, but with their Bass Pro merger, they have stopped um, buying mounts and stuff like that. So at this point, it's just, a, you know, the fan, the wing mounts. But I, I'd love for him to be on a full display somewhere, whether it's, you know, in my basement or in a museum in Washington, D.C. Where is your cool. – uh, how, how much did that cost? For, what uh, was that going to cost you for a full mount? I, I I can't even remember now. I want to say it was like 
700 bucks or Oof. somewhere around there. I, it's got to be like a ton of detail for a, a full strutting Tom. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, I don't think I would ever do it. I My first bird I ever killed, I did like just like the tail fan mount and the beard. And that was super cool. I like having that up and getting to see that, you know, that first one. Now, for whatever reason, I keep the beards and I keep the legs, you know, with the spurs attached. And I just have like a table in my barn just stacked with beards and legs. And if anyone who didn't like understand what these things were, they'd be really creeped out by this weird pile <laughs> in my barn. <laughs> but uh, but I've, I've seen some people like cut the spurs off and like put them on like a a cord or something. I don't know. Maybe I should do something like that someday. Cause you know, it's nice to have some kind of token or memento of that hunt and that bird, but I don't know. They just don't lend themselves to it. Like a, like a deer. And I've got multiple, uh, tail feathers and beard plaques that are in my garage that I don't even have on the wall. It's like they take up so much space and my success for a turkey is higher than my success for a deer so i mean if i wanted to i'd have them in every room of the house and you know multiple stacked on top of each other and it just i don't know i think i'm to the point now where i'm almost done collecting that stuff yeah i mean it it, yeah when some when the rarity of it is lost it, it does change things a little bit okay last question for you guys um do, do you have, like, a most embarrassing turkey experience or story? Either one of you guys? I do. I mean, my life is pretty much an embarrassment, but <laughs> I, <laughs> I will tell you. I'll tell you this turkey hunting story. So it was one of my very first ever turkey hunts. I'm 26. No, excuse me. 2002 so i'm like 22 years old i'm in college um the night before i went out and i just got hammered and so the next morning i woke up drove to drove to meet my uncles and we went out into the turkey woods and started hunting and the birds the birds are going bananas and all of a sudden I am getting this rumble in my stomach like I got to go number two and I got to go right now. And so I am I put my gun down and my uncle can't see me because he's kind of behind me. He's calling for me. So I have to like pull my pants down, walk in the walk you know, into this taller grass behind a tree and I got my pants down and I'm, I'm holding real still and I'm going to the bathroom and I'm watching these birds fly out of the tree right down to our decoys <laughs> and strutting. They're already strutting right in front of the decoys. And I hear my uncle just yell, shoot him, shoot him. And I don't even have my gun. And then he, he sits up out of this, this old tree he was sitting in, looks at me and I had my butt out and I was pooping. (laughs) (laughs) That that seems like an on par for the core story for Dan Johnson. (laughs) Can you top that Spencer? Uh, no, I, I can't think of like, one individual moment that bad but maybe just like collectively my first couple years turkey hunting uh, i was just terrible just 
what I was doing, uh, you know, my lowest of lows as a turkey hunter were really poor. And nobody in my family turkey hunted, so I was, you know, self-taught learning in the woods. And I think I'd probably start hunting when I was like 17 or 18 for turkeys. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't kill them with a shotgun. I just I was a failure. And so those first couple <laughs> years, looking back at what I was doing as far as like setups and calling and, and decoys and stuff like that, it, it was bad. I I had a very similar situation myself. Took a little took some growing pains. Uh, as I'm trying to think of like my embarrassing stories, I realize that probably the best embarrassing stories I have are not my own but stories about further. So uh, <laughs> And since Furter's not on here, I thought I should tell some of Furter's embarrassing stories. Let's story. roast him. Roast he can't defend himself. Roast and Furter's when Josh isn't here. Um, so how about this one? Um, kind of a ser- This is a whole series of turkey Furter stories where he does these things, and I'm like, really, man? Like, we're turkey hunting. We were sneaking in to actually get set up on this food plot. I might have told the story a couple of years ago right after it happened, but we're heading into this blind setup and we get to the food plot. We're just about to step out into the field and um, head towards the blind. And usually the birds roost a long ways away from this spot, but it's usually the closest we can get to the roost and usually they're on a neighboring property. We're just about to step in the field and a bird just lights up like 40 yards away in a tree just on the other side of the field, like right across the way. There's never birds here, but there was one this night. So we all just collapsed on the ground in the tall grass, like right next to the field, right next to the food plot. And fast forward, you know, the next 20 minutes or whatever, I make a couple of yelps. He hammers back. When it gets daylight, he flies down right into the food plot. But Josh and me are laying down because, again, we didn't have a blind. We didn't have any cover. We just collapsed, like, right, right where we were. So the turkey's coming in, and I can see the bird and... Furter's watching the bird, and I'm sitting there, and the turkey's at like 35 yards. And he's got the gun, and I'm just sitting, laying there behind him, watching him, thinking, okay, when's he going to shoot the bird? When's he going to shoot the bird? And, like, the bird's at 35 yards. The bird's at 30 yards. The bird's at 25 yards. The bird's at 20 yards. The bird's at 15 yards. And this whole time, I'm like, what's he doing? What's he doing? And he 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 turns, looks at me, and says, are you ready? I'm like, dude. <laughs> I'm not doing anything here, man. It's all you. Shoot the bird. <laughs> so then, he, then he finally gets up on his knees and shoots the bird and chases it down and all that. That poor guy. That poor guy. <laughs> I think, I think Spencer, we need to have a Wired to Hunt podcast that Mark isn't even on, but we bring Furter in to talk shit on Mark for a whole hour. Yep. Yeah. The, the key would... The key thing that makes this so so much better for me though is that I have the keys to the uploads. So ah, yeah. <laughs> so I always get to yeah. I always get to make Josh be the butt of my jokes. <laughs> he's a good sport. He's a very good sport. He keeps at it and he's killed plenty of birds and he gives us a good thing to laugh about every once in a while. So cool man. Well do you guys have any final thoughts on turkeys before we wrap this one up? No. I have a I have a PSA on something that's been sweeping the the turkey hunting nation, and that is the like hashtag longbird and hashtag snood to tail. Are you guys familiar with that? Yeah, I got called out because I didn't provide that measurement <laughs> on on there, and I guess I'm not trendy enough to know that there is a new measurement that actually does not go into the actual scoring of a bird. Yeah, so this was started by the guys at the hunting public, uh, like Zach and Aaron, uh, and 
I I believe it's just to like kind of poke fun at the idea of like trophy turkey hunting or the idea uh, of like oh I gotcha uh, it, you know like that's ridiculous so look at this ridiculous measurement uh, kind of thing it, it was something that they had started a couple years ago but now that they have their own deal going uh, that they can kind of uh, you know talk about freely and <laughs> and so, uh, so everybody Bill, Bill Winky was into snoo detail measurements. <laughs> <laughs> uh from what i, I from what i've heard yeah yep so now that uh this is a the hunting public thing so get your snoo detail measurements uh out there uh, when you upload them tag the hunting public sam soholt he is a huge promoter of snoo detail so tag him tag myself i'm i'm interested in this i believe the record holder for this season so far is uh matt mccormick from uh, sitka he shot a, a 52 inch, which is ginormous from the little bit of, uh, you know, information gathering that, that I've seen. So last week I killed a 49 inch, which is pretty good, but it's no 52. And so get get those new detail measurements. Uh, what do I they pay the one, you? What do they pay you for this plug, dude? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the, the one rule they said is you're supposed to have fun and uh, you're supposed to have a loose snood when you measure it. So no stretching the snood out. Um, but, but let's hear those long bird measurements this season. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and, and with that, I guess we will wrap up our turkey talk of the year. Thanks, uh, <laughs> thanks guys, for sticking with us. Got to have a loose snood. <laughs> and that is it for episode 211. A couple quick reminders. If you haven't yet left a rating or review on iTunes, please do that. It does not take very long. All you need to do is click a little star rating. Uh, if you want to leave more feedback, you can do that. We appreciate that. Um, also, as I mentioned a couple weeks back, we're posting more videos over on YouTube, so make sure to subscribe to the Wired to Hunt YouTube channel. And finally, I guess we'll just end this right off the bat and say thank you for listening. Thanks for your attention. Thanks for your time. Good luck out there turkey hunting. Whatever it is you're doing in the woods this time of year, I hope you have a blast. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.